Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and we're delighted to have Dr. Paul Copen on the broadcast today. Dr. Copen has a PhD in philosophy from Marquette, or Marquet, depending on where you are, university. He is a Christian theologian, an analytical professor, an apologist, and an author. He is currently a professor at the Palm Beach Atlantic University in sunny Florida, where he holds the endowed chair the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. And that is a plum for those of us not in the academic realm. To have a chair in an endowed position is sort of the joy of life of being a faithful professor. Paul's authored 40-plus books and counting. And the book we're going to discuss today that Paul's written really in a way, and Paul can correct me in a moment, is kind of a trilogy. His first book was God, a Moral Monster, And later on, is God a vindictive bully we're talking about today? And unfortunately, as often the case, these interviews, I don't always have opportunity to finish the text, but I'm well into his book that we're going to discuss today. And Paul, thanks for jumping on the podcast. We greatly appreciate you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Michael. So correct me, because I know I made a mistake there. This book is God a vindictive bully. And you had two prior books, correct? Right, yeah. The first one in 2011 is God a Moral Monster. The second one in 2014 uh, with Matthew Flanagan, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? And now this one that just came out a couple of weeks ago is God a Vindictive Bully. Spoiler alert, answer to all of those questions is no. (laughs) Oh, come on. You should have made him read the books. Just a shout out to Baker Publishing. Over the last couple of years, Baker's been tremendous at sending us pretty much any author that we want to interview, and, and you fall into that category. So I'm, I'm grateful and privileged to have you on the broadcast. So you're a professor, and you've had kids in class say, okay, Dr. Copen, why does God kill people? Why is God a moral monster? That was probably the provocative nature of getting you down this line or something else. Yeah, well, one of the questions, I mean, I guess this is the main question that people ask. It's, you know, of course, harshness in the Old Testament, and especially the warfare question in the Old Testament, that's the one that I get the most and most often asked to speak on. And so I say in response, take a look at the the ancient context, and you actually will be surprised that there is a lot of ancient Near Eastern trash talk going on. That it's kind of like our sports, our our athletic trash talk today. We totally annihilated those guys, and and no one thinks that when you annihilated that team, that uh, there are bodies, literal bodies, all over the place. Uh, they just know that it was a decisive victory, and and in the same way, in the ancient Near East, there were uh, battles that were fought, and you'd have the annals of the king or the pharaoh declaring that there were none left alive, there are no survivors, that they were all turned to ash, and so forth. Uh, But at least the Bible mentions that there are lots of survivors, which you don't have in the case of these annals of these ancient Near Eastern kings. They just make it look like everybody, the other army is non-existent. And so anyway, by go into detail on that, look at the ancient Near Eastern cultural background, try to look at the genre or the type of literature. And the more I've dug into this, the more I've seen that there is just a lot of hyperbole, that it tends to look a lot more like ancient battles between armies rather than, you know, the Israelites involving non-combatants or something like that. So anyway, we, we can go into more detail on that, but it's been a, an interesting road of discovery for me as I've been interacting with noted Old Testament scholars, archaeologists, and historians. Does God ever require Israel to exterminate a people group? The issue is not the people group itself. The issue is what their mark of identity is. And I use the example, I follow uh, John and Harvey Walton here in their book, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, and they use the analogy of the Nazis and Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. After the defeat of the German army, the Nazi army, the Allies destroyed all of the monuments, they dismantled the hierarchy, they put to death those who were leading the Nazi army and its machinery against the Jews to exterminate them, destroyed all of the flags and anything that symbolized Nazism. But when all was said and done, you still have the German people intact. 
And when you look at the, say, the Canaanites or whatever, you have the people who are, say, in the book of Genesis, friendly with the patriarchs. And the problem is not the, the, their ethnicity. The problem is their behavior and their pernicious influence that they could exert on the Israelites. And so if the Israelites don't remove those idols and shrines and altars and so forth, they can get sucked into the lifestyle of the Canaanites. And of course, the Canaanites, we know, were being judged for their sinfulness, for their wicked acts, such as you know, incest, bestiality, ritual prostitution, infant sacrifice, acts that would be considered criminal in any modern society. And so it was these things that were at issue, because you have lots of Canaanites joining up with the Israelites. That's not the problem. The problem is when they bring their their ideological and moral uh, and religious baggage with them, that could be a pitfall to the and a stumbling block to the Israelites, and therefore obstructing the mission of the Israelites to bring light and blessing mm-hmm. to the nations, as well as compromising their own identity as the people of God. You know, as as a pastor, teacher, I've often said that God knows these people are, they hate Yahweh. They hate Yahweh Elohim's people. And ergo, this isn't an issue where we're trying to win a culture to be a blessing to all nations as Abraham began. But these are enemies that you use the word pernicious. They're never going to stop at some level. Yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, of course, you do see, say, in the minor prophets, the Psalms and so forth, an acknowledgement that these Canaanite peoples, uh, and of course, if you trace them ethnically, these are the people in Lebanon that from genetic testing, we, we know that those who had been inhabitants of Canaan are now in the well, you know, Lebanon region. But the point is that you all along the way, you do have Canaanites joining up with the Israelites. You have, uh, you have the Canaanite peoples, of course, the Kenites, Canaanite peoples, they're mentioned. And of course, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. You have strangers Mm -hmm. who are at a covenant renewal ceremony in Joshua chapter 8. These are people who live in the region of Shechem who are participating with the Israelites. You have, of course, Rahab, and you have others who are mentioned. In fact, even Caleb was the son of Jephunneh, the the Kenizzite, so another Canaanite people. So the issue is not ethnicity. The issue is the immorality. The issue is, again, the the matter of being a pernicious influence on the Israelite people whom God desired to bring in the land. So simultaneously a judgment uh, on the Canaanites, as well as bringing the Israelites into the land that would bring forth the Messiah, who would be the Redeemer of all the nations. And so there is, because there is this obstacle, the Canaanites and their pernicious activity, they're leading Israel as potentially leading Israel astray, that judgment fell. And again, it was over 500 years that God waited for this to take place. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a precipitous judgment. It was a patient waiting, and it wouldn't have been appropriate for the Israelites to come in prior to this time, but God waited until the time was right. And then the Israelites began to drive out the Canaanites. One of the questions we all get at some point is who hardens Pharaoh's heart? And (laughs) I remember as a college student reading ad nauseum, all the different positions. And then there's the, 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 the way we parse it. Well, who did it first? Right. (laughs) So Paul, give us the definitive answer. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? (laughs) Pharaoh started it. Pharaoh, of course, was he, he was not, he was, it wasn't as though this is just some nice Pharaoh minding his own business, yeah, and think, then God yeah, hardens his think, heart. Yeah. You have, from the very beginning, someone who is nasty, someone who is an oppressor, someone who brought the Israelites to such a point that they're crying out for relief from the Lord, and so he sends Moses to rescue them. So, and again, Moses we see uh, speaks to Pharaoh, and often Pharaoh was hardening his own heart, but we see that God hardens his heart. And basically, this hardening of the heart is God letting Pharaoh have his own way, letting him go with his own desires, but yet using willfulness of Pharaoh to show that God is actually in charge of this leader of the superpower nation of the day, that God is the one who is in charge of the nations. And even if you have these Israelite people 
on your turf, God is going to show that he's greater than, than you, greater than your nation, greater than your gods, as Exodus 12, 12 says. When uh, you mentioned ancient Near Eastern culture, and you also used the word genre. So let me ask this without getting too deep. How do we differentiate? And I'm always thinking about the average English Bible reader who loves God. They're in church. They have, do daily Bible study, maybe. Maybe they're precept or BSF or whatever, okay. but not the sort of fringe, you know, come to church occasionally, but the Christian who's growing. Sure. When, when you and I use words like ancient Near Eastern and, uh, and, and genre, how much of this, for example, I'm teaching Proverbs right now, and in right. our church, I've been trying to, to be very careful to say many of these were in Egyptian, you know, uh, literature, if you will, uh-huh. and sure. Solomon, it's a truth, and Solomon uh-huh. brings them in. That uh-huh. doesn't lessen the validity or, you know, inerrancy debate, if you will. Sure. So we see an ancient Near Eastern influence. We know Hebrew was not the earliest written language, but help out our friends. Just give us a a 25 or 50 word. How do we navigate not getting so into ancient Near Eastern and genre that people might think, well, I really can't trust the Bible after all? Well, when we read a text like, you know, the trees of the field will clap their hands, we don't think, oh, that's got, I've got to take that literally. And, and of course, this takes, this takes doing some homework. So some people say, yes. well, I always read the Bible literally. Well, we don't always. We don't read a lot of Revelation literally, but it's highly symbolic. And so we ought to read the Bible literarily. That is the way that the author is writing the kind the nature of the literature that he's using an understanding between the author and the audience that you're going to read this in such a way as I'm intending it to be understood so when we for example read once upon a time what comes to mind we don't think oh what was the date of this fairy tale no we don't think that way and so we look we read parables we don't assume that this has to have some sort of historical basis you know when we're reading Paul's letters, we understand that there is a structure and style to writing letters that was common in the Mediterranean world. So when you have, you know, Paul, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he greets those who, uh, greets his audience, and then he, you know, you know sends grace, mercy, and peace, or uh, mercy and peace, or whatever. You know, this is a common start to a letter in the Mediterranean world, and so we get that. But there are some places where it could be a little trickier, and so if you as you do your homework, you dig in a little bit more and you realize, oh, that's how they do it. They use highly symbolic or hyperbolic language here. And so just like we do in our sports talk, we totally annihilated those guys. We destroyed that other team. Well, people who come along, say, 3,000 years later, it'd be nice for them to know that this is just the way that we did our sports trash talk rather than thinking that we meant these things literally. And in the same way, as we look back, say three or more thousand years, we pick up on those same sorts of vibes as we study the literature more and more. And again, it's a matter of doing homework. It's a matter of sticking with it. And you learn as you go. So don't be discouraged as you are in BSF, as you're doing some inductive Bible study. Sometimes it is helpful to know that that background information that you say, oh, okay, that's what they mean. And then you will realize that when it says there were no survivors, and then you see survivors in the next chapter, you realize, oh, that's, a, of course, that makes sense. That's not a contradiction. And so it help, enables you to see things much more clearly. And so, like I said, some things are meant to be just straightforward historical narrative. Other things are meant to be parabolic. Other things are meant to be poetic. And when we get to war text, that's a unique genre where you do have high degrees of exaggeration, even though there is a historical base to them. Let's uh, move to you have two chapters called Divine Smiting, and I think this is one that, again, a close Bible reader has trouble with. Let me read the text you cite in Second Kings chapter 2, um, verses 23 to 4 here, the ESV. He went up from Bethel, or he was going on the way. Some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. He turned around, and we saw them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. 
pretty strong. It is strong. Of course, it's nice to do a little bit of digging into this and see what's actually going on. So, one, it's interesting, the, the whole bald thing. Well, anybody compared to Elisha's mentor, Elijah, would have looked bald because we have Elijah described as a very hairy man. And so, by contrast, you have someone who has less hair, maybe being bald. But again, this is, we see that there is this picture of a cursing in the name of the Lord. Well, where does that come from? Well, interestingly, in the law of Moses at the end of Leviticus, Leviticus 26, we have these curses, bless, you know, the blessings and curses, and God threatens that if you break covenant with the Lord who graciously initiated this relationship with Israel, if you break that covenant, that God is going to bring certain judgments upon you, including sending wild beasts to attack so that you will be, and here's a key word, bereft of your children. That word bereft is used in, say, 2 Kings chapter 1, where you have Elijah, before he ascends to heaven in the chariot of fire, he goes on up. And so that's why you have go on up, bald head, go on up, bald head. So you have that kind of a background when, when Elisha is being addressed. And then Elisha has just been to Jericho. So he's now on the scene. He goes to Jericho. There is this contaminated water. And Elisha, you know, the, the people are pleading with him to come and help them. And he purifies the water. The water had been, had rendered the land fruitless, or bereft. It was bereft of fruit. And so that word bereft there is used in this context. So if you honor the prophet of God, the land will not be bereft. But if you, like in Bethel, which was a center of idolatry, which was a center of apostasy, that when he goes there, he rather than being welcomed, he is being mocked. And so the wild beasts come and attack these 42 well, who are these 42? Well, these 42 are unmarried young men and you know these youths. That's the same word that's used for David, for example, when before he's about to fight Goliath. It's also used of Solomon when he becomes king. It's used of those who are engaged in soldiering but are unmarried. They don't have households of their own. So these are, and also you think of mm -hmm. Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, Rehoboam brings in his own friends from his childhood who now become part of the royal household. And these youths, these young men, are advising Rehoboam about how he should rule. And, you know, if you think that Solomon was bad, you know, if you think, you know, uh, yep. you know if, you, if he beat finger. you with whips, I'm going to whip you with scorpions and so forth. So he, rather than relenting, he he puts on the pressure and following following the advice of his childhood friends who are now grown up but don't have aren't married, don't have households of their own. So that's the kind of language that we have here. And there's uh, some scholars have written that this is these are probably not just part of the royal palace in Bethel, but also probably connected to the priesthood somehow. So they're 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 part of the mm. false worship of Bethel. So, so those are some things that are part of the background that are helpful for us to understand as we look at this. And so it's not just a kind of playground talk and little kids making fun of each other. This is something far more serious. When you deal with imprecatory psalms or imprecatory psalms uh, in a couple of ways, and one of my uh, professors in Hebrew Old Testament at Dallas Seminary often said, when you read these, understand uh, the petition of the worshiper may or may not have ever seen that result. And he asked us, you know, rhetorically, you're to stone an adulterer, uh, not a fornicator, but an adulterer in the Levitical law. Do you find any record of it happening? You know, I mean, that's an argument from silence, granted. But when you think through Christ, the alleged woman caught in adultery, we don't have the other party, you know, they violated so many nuances of the law or prescriptions of the law. And of course he forgives her. So back to my rambling question, imprecatory had a place in the Psalter. There were times, but then there's also times when David, you know, context is crucial, but when, when, um, 
Now, Abishai says, why should that dead dog curse my king? Let me go up there, and I think the king's English says, and lop off his head. (laughs) And David says, no, paraphrase, maybe God has appointed him for such. So help us understand this imprecatory prayer, and was this an outcome, or is it sort of back to your genre and narrative in ancient Near East? Is it a way of talking about the wicked and dealing with the wicked? Uh, The imprecatory psalms are cries for God to bring justice, and there is strong language that is being used, and I go through various ways of understanding this. Are these imprecatory psalms simply speaking out of emotion, the kind of the red-hot emotion of the psalmist's heart where there is such rawness, sort Mm -hmm. of like when you just want to strangle someone who's just tried to deal drugs to your children. And so you're not quite cooled down here. You're speaking in the heat of the moment and the heat of this feeling that you have this rage at injustice, at this rage at harming the innocent and so forth. So so you have the psalmists who are asking God to do what he has promised to do, so to render everyone according to his deeds— And so sometimes you will have psalmists who are theologically imprecise, and I leave room for that. For example, when when David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, you get to the end of the psalm, and God is not one who abandons those who cry out to him, who call out to him, that when this person, you know, your servant called out, you know, you heard. There's this understanding that it's not a literal abandonment. Or uh, Psalm 89, that it looks like God has forsaken his covenant. You know, how, you know, you've broken your covenant with us. Well, that's the psalmist speaking, but in language that reflects how he feels. So it's not as though we have to insist on theological precision in these sometimes highly emotive psalms. And so we have to remember that as we interpret the imprecatory psalms, that there is behind it the promise of blessing to Israel, to those who are honoring Israel, those who bless Israel, that God will bless, but those who curse Israel, then God will bring Mm -hmm. that judgment because he is standing up for his covenant people, that God is not going to let that go. And so the psalmists are crying out for that. So, So you have basically, you know, plea to honor your covenant you've made with us, Lord, a plea also for justice that you'll render to everyone according to his deeds and so forth. So you have that in the backdrop to help you understand it. And I go into detail on a passage like Psalm 137, blesses the one who dashes your little ones against the rocks. And who are these little ones? Are they just little babies? Actually, there are scholars who say, no, this is actually the daughter of Babylon. It's not as though this is the, these are just little children. These are actually soldiers or the royal house. And so it's a prayer for God to bring an end to the tyranny of Babylon and so forth. So so there are, some, there are different ways of looking at this, and so I lay out all of these, these various options. So as, as I read the conclusion on your chapters on imprecatory psalms, the question I have is in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul has a known adulterer sleeping with his stepmother, basically, and it's not being addressed, and he prays for him to be delivered over to destruction for the salvation Correct. of his flesh. That would hearken imprecatory to me. Yeah, it does sound like it. And uh, in fact, there are other imprecatory-like statements, say, for example, the heavenly martyrs in Revelation 6 who call on the Lord, holy and true, you know, how long until you avenge our blood that has been shed by those who dwell upon the earth? And so this is just, again, calling for God to do what he promised he would, namely to vindicate and, and also to render to everyone according to his deeds. And also the New Testament utilizes various imprecatory psalms. It's not as though, oh, that's the just Old Testament stuff. Now we get to the New Testament and you don't have any of that. No, you actually do. You have various imprecatory psalms that are quoted in the New Testament. Psalm, for example, in Acts chapter 1, two imprecatory psalms are quoted. Let his mm-hmm. you know, dwelling place be made desolate. Let another take his office. Uh, that you have Paul quoting from another imprecatory psalm in Romans chapter 11 about blinding their eyes and, and uh, twisting their backs and so forth. Uh, and so there, you do have these sorts of imprecatory psalms, and Paul himself in Second 
Thessalonians, saying that those who are persecuting the Thessalonians, that God will avenge those Thessalonians uh, against those who have been uh, bringing harm to them. So you do have that sort of thing. Yes, your curse imprecation is more muted, but it still is there. It's not as though it's just gone. In fact, there is great rejoicing in the book of Revelation, Revelation right. 18, when Babylon is overthrown. You know, the one who has done such damage and harm to the people of God is overthrown, and that this is a cause for great rejoicing that justice has been done. Well, and that, that, that was, again, my, my clarification for understanding your, your earlier comment, because it almost sounded like imprecation only was maybe a hopeful thing for God's justice. It was more theoretical, but there are implementations of it, I would argue, that you know when, when he does bring, I mean, we could look at, to go back to Pharaoh and the hardening, those plagues were, were nothing to you know sneeze at. I mean, those plagues were devastating to their people, I'm especially sure. the final one with the death of the firstborn. Sure. So we, we uh, I think it was D.A. Carson who many years ago said, you have to keep the, the love and the wrath of God as a two-sided coin. Not the best illustration, but apt in that for God to bring forth and execute divine perfect love, he must address sin. And Perfect. that will bring wrath. And of course, no other example needed than the wrath he pours out on his son. Or am I missing all this, Doc? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is that I would say that one, the that wrath and love are not opposed to each other, but wrath flows out of God's love or passionate concern when there is injustice, when there is violence when people are being harmed, when God's image bearers are being degraded. If God were not to get angry, if God were not to be wrathful, it would show that he doesn't care. And wrath is an expression of God's profound concern for what is going on, that he is going to take action, he's going to do something about this. I do touch on briefly the question of the, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus himself is laying down his life for the sins of the world, no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down and takes it up again. So a lot of people, when they look at the crucifixion of Jesus, they will sometimes say, oh, this is divine child abuse and so forth. No, this is the act of the triune God. It's not as though there are three parties involved, but just two, the triune God and human beings whom God loves. So God so loved the world that he gave, not God so hated the world. And so that's something to keep in mind. Mm. My mind runs over to anthropology pomorphic language and folks that might not be familiar with that were ascribing human terms to God who is sovereign and beyond description yet we have the person of Jesus Christ who embodies that so the tension I always try to address when I'm teaching and you can help me out here is when we have you know some of this over-the-top quote-unquote language that might be uh, you know I hate the phrase, but it might hurt people's feelings or, you know, God's intolerant, hateful. Where, wherein do I draw the line where anthropomorphic language is explaining God in, in a way that humanly we can't get there? Right. Does that make sense? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are, of course, uh, you know, God does not have a body, but where you do have body language, like the eyes of the Lord or the arm of the Lord, uh, clearly, this is uh, anthropomorphic language to the form of, you know, kind of using human forms to depict something about God. You also do have sometimes literary devices that give the impression that, for example, God yes. doesn't know the future. And so God says, now I know that you're, you know, you fear me when he said, you know, says this to Abraham in Genesis 22. Well, it wasn't as though God didn't know it before, but the act was completed. and <laughs> And of course... Abraham himself is convinced that God is going to bring Isaac back with him because he says, we will go and worship and we will return. And so if you take, yes. and I know the open theist uh, likes to draw on these I sorts of that. passages, but you think about even in Genesis chapter 18, where God is talking with Abraham and he's saying in this kind of dialogical, again, it's like, it's like a very, almost like two humans talking with each other, but God is saying to Abraham that he... Of course, the, you know, coming in, in three persons, uh, these three personages who come, their manifestation of Yahweh, 
and they say that we will go to down to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the outcry has come to us, and we will go down and see for ourselves, and then yes. we will know, or then yes. I will know. Well, does that mean that God doesn't even know the present? That he doesn't even know right. what's going on at present? Well, again, that goes against the idea that the open theist says that God doesn't know the future, and he uses these sorts of texts. Well, in this case, God doesn't even know the present. So, so again, you have to be careful about pushing this language too hard. So, so there are some, some... Wait, wait, let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. You say God doesn't know the present, or is the language in the story showing the human reader the side of things? Of course he knows the outcome. Of course, I mean, I don't believe in foreordination that he would look down the annals of time and say, Paul and Michael are going to come to Christ at such and such a day, so I'll call them. That's nonsense, as well as open theism being nonsense. But at the yeah. same time, if he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, are you telling me he doesn't know the present? No, I'm saying I'm using I'm using the text that the open theists often use that God doesn't know the future. Okay, and I'm saying if you're going to go down I'm that route, you. then you 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 have to admit that God doesn't even know the present when He's saying, "Then I, I will I'm know following. about Sodom and Gomorrah." I'm a little well, thanks slow. Thanks for clarifying. Okay, let's let. <laughs> Let's get to one that everyone wants to know. Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Yeah, this is a, of course, one, it's a comparative term that God makes a covenant, uh, sets his unique love on Israel, but he does not make a covenant with Esau, with Edom. And so it can look like hatred. And of course, this is reflected in the words of Jesus that the person who loves his father and mother more than me cannot be my disciple. And the the parallel is, if you do not hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. Well, of course, Jesus in Matthew 15 talks about honoring your father and mother and so forth. So he's not against loving your parents. But the point is that if you love them more, in other words, allegiance to Christ will sometimes demand saying no to what your family is insisting on. Like if you come from a Muslim or a Hindu background, they may have a funeral for you. They may try to kill you if you become a believer in Christ. And so it looks like you hate them in doing so, in deciding for Christ. So so there is that kind of language. So when God is saying, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated, God is saying, I have chosen this nation. It's not just an individual because they say, how have you loved us? in Malachi chapter 1. So it's referring to the entire nation is asking, not just one individual, but representative of the nation. It's not as though God somehow is has this ethnic opposition to Edom or Esau. Uh, in fact, in at, uh, at, at Pentecost, we have those who are Edomians who are present at the reception of the message from Peter and they become believers. So they are the recipients of the blessing of God. But the language of choosing, of election, of binding oneself in a covenant, it looks like you're ignoring or not paying attention to or not concerned with someone, with the other person. But it's it's kind of like when you get married, you're saying no to everybody else. You're singling out one person, and that is you're removing all other options, and that's the way it should be. That's the way that a covenant works uh, in this sort of a setting. And and so I think we ought to understand it in that particular way, rather than that there is some sort of a, you know, hate that God hates this particular people. Uh, we see that God is not willing that any should perish. We see that God is willing to relent when any nation repents, including Nineveh, uh, in, jo- in Jonah chapter 4, and also when we when we look at in Jeremiah chapter 18, any nation that repents from its wickedness, God will relent from sending judgment as he had promised. And that's one reason I, I wanted to get your comments on anthropomorphism, because Amen. we think of a vindictive, angry, capricious God wielding a sword and destroying his enemies, mm-hmm. and you've already articulated, you know, he wants none to perish. He died for these folks. Mm-hmm. If we get into double predestination in a moment, which I do want to touch on, but let me ask you from a pastoral, again, larger population base, Paul, when you made the comment about your allegiance to Christ may mean saying no, and you use the illustration of Islam, I can think of 25 off the top of my head 
you know, in, in recent years where a uh, adult has their parent divorce and decide they're, you know, gay or lesbian or whatever, and they leave their spouse and move in with the, uh-huh. with another, you know, of the same sex. And then the couple comes to me and say, they want us to come to the wedding and bring our children. And, you know, I want to support my father, but, and we go down this circular discussion, I use very similar language. I mean, you know, is your walk with Christ the most important thing in your right. home, your family, your, how you teach your kids? Right. And that doesn't mean you hate what your adult parent is doing, but you do hate sin right. and in a loving way. And, and this is very delicate and more and right. more sure. as Christians are vilified. I think the body of Christ is so afraid they're so on their heels. They're so uh, painted in a corner because we're hateful. You know, we, we're unkind. We're not inclusive. We don't engage the community, et cetera, that we're afraid to say, I love you. I just disagree. And I can't align myself with your choices. Help me out there a little bit and help our friends out. How do we navigate this? Because you did say my allegiance to Christ may mean I say no to some things. Right. Well, I I think that there are different ways in which we cash these things out. We all, I'd say, when it comes to, you know, homosexuality, we have friends, relatives who are involved in, in gay relationships, and there are ways in which we express love for them. But it may also mean that if coming to a wedding is going to indicate some sort of an endorsement of that, then we are right to pull back and not participate in that. That would be sending the wrong message. For some people, admittedly, it's a, it's a matter of conviction. Uh, it's a matter of conscience. Some people say, well, I won't go to the wedding ceremony because that would be showing support, but I, I will go to the I will go to the reception. So they might make some distinctions. Reception, yeah. uh, others, uh, you know, others might say, well, the, if the people assume that my going will mean my endorsement, then I will not go. They might say, but if, it, if they understand that I take a very strong, I stand in strong opposition to this, but out of friendship, kind of pastoral relationship, I will attend so long as they know that. Then you know, some, some, I, I know of Christians who will go. But again, I, the point here is, is that you can say no just when it comes to church discipline. Like you mentioned, Paul in First Corinthians chapter five, when he is turning this person over to Satan, it's not as though there's some sort of a hostility here, because the goal is that his flesh might be saved. There's the goal of salvation that this discipline could actually lead that person to repentance. And we see that sort of a thing taking place in 2 Corinthians, where, where you can go too far and alienate someone and, and not restore that person. But the goal is restoration. But until that person repents, until that person turns, then church discipline is the only, the only alternative. And Jesus himself, as he makes these sorts of statements, that the one who leads— these little ones astray. It'd be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. A very strong statement here. So yeah. there's not a, a compromising <laughs> yeah, <thank you>. kind <laughs> of, well, you know, you, you, you can go ahead and compromise. That's okay. Jesus is very strong, very protective of yes. his, his people. And even when it comes to Saul, when in, in Acts 9-3, when Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is one who identifies with his people to such a degree that he feels the pain of that persecution, that he is being insulted. He is the one who is being persecuted. So a very powerful statement there. Yeah, yeah. I would, uh, just to clarify, not to joust with you, but I think Paul is angry. He's angry at the church that's allowing this to transpire. You know, I've already judged such a one. You should have gotten rid of him. So the anger isn't directed specifically to the sinner, but the fact that the church has tolerated it. So anyway, my two cents. Yeah, well, of course, course, there should be a sorrow that leads to repentance. And and, and also when there is repentance, there ought to be restoration. Celebration. Uh, Death penalty. Let's talk about the death penalty. 
Well, we do see that in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 9, that at least in principle, it is not immoral, and that God ordains the death penalty to preserve order. Of course, we see violence uh, at the time before the flood, and so the death penalty that comes in Genesis 9 is seen as a way of God's helping to restore order, of his bringing about a way of dealing with violence in the future so as to prevent the kind of depths of depravity and degradation that come when people are engaging in such uh, you know, harsh activity, de- de- denigrating the image of God and others and so forth. So, so we get to Israel and the Mosaic Law, and we do see that the death penalty is mandated for murder that there is no ransom payment for when there is murder, that death penalty must ensue. But as people like Walter Kaiser and other Old Testament scholars acknowledge, in the other 15 potentially capitally punishable offenses, that those may be commuted to payment, that there is an understanding that not every potential death penalty case must issue for in the death, say, of, of adulterers, but that could be commuted to uh, to payment. Uh, and so, the, you know, the book of Numbers uh, makes this clear, Numbers 35. So we have mm-hmm. this sort of yes. a picture of ransom, of payment, where there have been damages. But again, the, the death penalty could be, you know, tip, you know, where you have the maximum penalty of death, it could be commuted in most of those cases. If you can briefly, Paul, give me Slavery, of course, and I've read your chapters, and and I have always tried to differentiate between indentured, volitional slavery, you know, when I'm bankrupt and my land's gone and I subscribe myself to a landowner to work off my debt, et cetera. Boy, this is a, this is a flashpoint, especially for our African-American friends. There, there's a long, long injurious uh, wound, and so the Bible has to differentiate between slavery and and you you address this in I think your other book as well. Yeah, well, one of the points that I make in this latest book is that a lot of our translations could be very misleading. Here we've had this history of imperialism, colonialism, and you know Jim Crow laws, uh, abolition of slavery, and so forth. But yet our earlier Bible translations, not just in English but in in other languages as well. They have a lesser word, you know, they talk about more like servant or worker, but our more modern translations utilize the stronger terminology of slavery, of slave. And this is unfortunate because it does not take into account, one, the kind of history and the kind of, what it triggers, the kind of emotional associations that come with slavery, that come with the term slave. And what I say is that it's better to use a term like servant because, or sometimes even worker, because that better captures what is going on. Like you said, there is indentured servitude. You pay off your debt after, say, seven years, and then you're, you know, it's not as though this is, say, lifelong, you know, slavery that you see in the antebellum South. In fact, I make this point in both my Moral Monster book and Vindictive Bully book, that if the law of Moses were followed, then we would not have any sort of slavery issues because one, kidnapping is prohibited. Secondly, you have provision made for those who are who could sell themselves into slavery. But if you make provision for them, like gleaning laws and so forth, not charging interest, then you are keeping them out of this position where they have to would have to sell themselves to someone else and be indentured servants. Also, there are term limits. You cannot go beyond a certain time. Uh, you know, after six years, you are to be let go without, you know, without debt. And there are judgments for those who hang on to their servants longer. In you know, Jeremiah and Amos and so forth, there are these strong words used against those who continue to keep people in servitude. But you also have the acknowledgement that, you know, keep in mind that in Israel, to be a servant was to be part of the family. So this is not you've got to go and and uh, and and be in some sort of a shack out there. You actually enter into the life of the family, as John Golden Gay, Old Testament scholar, argues. And so it could be, and this is the ideal, where if you 
are serving and you say, I really like this arrangement. And it could be a place of security, of taking care, someone else is taking care of your housing, your food, your your wages and so forth, that you can manage living within this household, then Stay on. that could be ideal. Yeah. And so you just say, well, I love my employer slash, you know, master, you know, and you, you align yourself with that person. So it becomes a voluntary thing. So fundamentally, you're gutting the institution of slavery as we would think of it today. If it becomes a voluntary thing where you say, I really like this arrangement working for this person, you see the nature of that uh, really becoming coming, becoming very clear. And so fundamentally, the institution of slavery, if it could be, you know, servitude, if it could be a voluntary thing, if you could enter into it, uh, yeah, there's no there's no sense of inherent oppression here. It's a neutral term, and uh, and keep in mind too that the that foreigners, if they ran away from a, a foreign master, the, the foreign slaves could run to Israel, and we we read in a couple of places that they could settle in any of Israel's cities. So this is to be a, Israel is yes. to be a place of refuge for them, that they are not to be sent back to their masters. And and there were you know now in other parts of the ancient Near East there were extradition treaties to send back the runaway slave. But Israel is commanded to keep, to harbor the, you know, to harbor them. And you know, again, it could be Code of Hammurabi. It was punishable by death if you hung on to if you're harboring yeah, a runaway slave. Yeah. But in Israel, it's actually a place of rescue. So, so we actually have a very you know, at least the law is set up to preserve these humane conditions, these livable conditions, rather than to be seen as a place of oppression. It's to be a place of liberation, a place of freedom. And even if you're an Israelite and you've got a harsh you know, someone who is who is for whom you're working who becomes harsh. Well, what, there'd be nothing preventing you from leaving, uh, going to another part of Israel, uh, and finding refuge there. So the same sort of principle mm-hmm. applies. So we we fundamentally see a, an undercutting, an undermining of the institution of what we call quote slavery uh, or servitude by having this volunteer element as being so strong that that would be really be the ideal to to work for someone as a servant. And say, I love this gig. I, I, I'm going to keep it up. Yeah, I would add that's the only legitimate reason for piercing your ear. <laughs> 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 okay, last question, Doc. What's the most frequent question you get asked under this broad scope of is God a moral monster? Is God, uh, you know, vindictive? Is he a proponent of genocide? What's the one you hear? most commonly? Well, I'd say it's probably those warfare passages in the Old Testament. I think that that's one that huh. uh, just never goes away. That, you know, they can say, okay, I can I can follow you here, 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 and here, but what about those warfare texts? And what about no survivors and so on? And and I, I have found that the the more I've been digging, the more I see that you know, non-combatants are not really in view here. And I give I, I give an example well, in Numbers chapter 21, we have the two Amorite kings, and the they the Israelites want to pass through their territory peacefully, and they rise up and fight against Israel, Sihon, and Og, and and they are defeated. And I think that's what, in that whole term, utterly destroy, there's a question about, well, how do we interpret that? And of course, we talked about Nazi Germany, it basically just means defeat, and the number of survivors, that's a, that's, you know, a secondary question. But it just simply means that there has been a victory, that another party has been defeated. But in this case, the the Amorites kings have been defeated, and we read about the king, his sons, and his army. So there's this: the battle account on the ground is that it's an it's a basic army that you're fighting against, no civilians. You get to Deuteronomy two and three, which recounts those battles, and mm-hmm. keep in mind that Deuteronomy highly intensifies that rhetoric, that language, which we call merisms, this sweeping language, man, woman, young and old, you know, speaking of totality. And so it throws in that kind of strong language, even though there are not children, women, the elderly present, that they are not on the scene, but yet that kind of sweeping language is incorporated into the you know into Deuteronomy uh, to use to to speak in the that like with that ancient Near Eastern trash talk that there is that kind of a hyperbole that kind of exaggeration that is that is common 
And so I go through a number of texts and talk about really all of the challenging texts that people will raise in my vindictive bully book. And I think have come to reasonable treatment of them. Doesn't mean that there are no tensions or that there can't be, like I'll give a couple of interpretations for, say, the Numbers 31 passage with the Midianite women and so forth. I think there are ways of addressing these considerations. But I think that overall, we have fundamentally civilians who are out of the picture when it comes to Israelite warfare. And that's reinforced, for example, as Richard Hess says, that these Canaanite cities are fundamentally citadels or fortresses rather than places that are inhabited by civilians. You might have a Rahab here and there, but generally these are citadels that are soldiers are, where administrators are, where, where say, documents and grains are kept and so forth, but the people yeah. are, in the, uh, yeah. are generally in the hill country. Well, I would talk to you for an awfully long time, and we might even consider a part two and Sounds three. Good. Is God a moral monster was the first of this so-called trilogy. And then we go, did God really command genocide? And now we have Paul's newest book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? And again, these are Baker Academic, uh, the last one in particular, a brand new book by Paul. Thank you so, so much for joining the podcast. Sure. Uh, as always, hope that God will use it far beyond our conversation. And thanks for your work. I know this is an act of love, but I know a bit about scholarship. And it's obvious you have put the sweat equity in to pull this together. So thanks for your labors. Thanks for your ministry. And may God continue to bless you great down at West Palm Beach Atlantic down in Florida. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. God bless you. Keep up the good work yourself. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.